Welcome to the Health of Woman podcast. Today is Monday, June 29th, 2020. Today, we kick off our first mini-series titled Prenatal Genetics. For these mini-series, we are going to release several consecutive podcasts related to the same topic. Two reasons to do this. First, some topics are really huge, and in order to properly discuss them, it requires several podcasts. Think of it like a deep dive into one topic. That is certainly the case for prenatal genetics. Another reason for a mini-series is that there are some topics where it's helpful to get different experts' thoughts on the topic or look at the same topic from different angles. We have several other mini-series planned, including one on when bad things happen in pregnancy and another one on yoga. Today, we start our two-week mini-series on prenatal genetics with The World of Genetics. This podcast is an introduction to prenatal genetics with Dr. Tamar Goldwasser, who is both an OBGYN and a medical geneticist. Tamar joined our team last year, and we are so fortunate to have her. Tamar will also be joining me for the second podcast this week on aneuploidy screening and the third podcast in the miniseries as well on carrier screening. For the fourth and final podcast of the miniseries, Dr. Andre Rebarber and I talk about invasive genetic testing, such as amniocentesis and CVS. I hope you enjoy these miniseries, and if you have any suggestions for other miniseries, please email them in. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're here with Dr. Tamar Goldwasser, an OBGYN and medical geneticist here at MFM Associates. Tamar, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. We've been talking about this for a while, circling, you know, trying to get this done. But with our schedules, it hasn't been that easy. But uh, I understand that you have now sequestered yourself in a closet and the yeah. door is closed and your your children don't know where you are and it's we're ready to roll. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that's what all the great podcasters do. Everyone just sits in a dark closet somewhere. So that's good. So just so our listeners understand, explain what it means to be both an OBGYN and a medical geneticist, because that's not really a common combination, correct? Correct. After medical school, I did a residency in OBGYN, and that was awesome, and I loved it. And then I was introduced to some people who were also in the field of genetics, and I said, oh, how do you do that? So I learned that you can become a medical geneticist, but you actually first have to have training in some sort of field when you can do primary care. So you can do medical genetics residency. It's actually a residency, but you have to first either be trained in OBGYN, internal medicine, pediatrics, something where you can, you've already had the training to take care of patients. And so then after my OBGYN residency, I did a second residency in medical genetics where it was a combination of experiences between pediatrics and adults and OBGYN, but it included like neurology, experiences and metabolic disease experiences. And when I had elective time, I spent my, I focused my time on ultrasound and prenatal diagnosis, like doing amniocentesis and CVS procedures and counseling patients either in pregnancy or, or preconception. So that's, that's the combination. So mo- most people who do medical 
genetics, what what do they do first? Are they pediatricians first, internal medicine? I think it's usually pediatricians. That's the majority. Right. Because I mean, most of the time when, when they're sort of doing the clinical genetics work, currently it's for children who are born with genetic conditions or concerns for genetic conditions. And so it sort of fell into the laps of the pediatricians to learn more about genetics. Yes, correct. You know, the pediatricians will be called, let's say, when there's a an unexpected finding in a newborn or if a baby is crashing in the NICU and the etiology or the, you know, the reason is not clear or to see a baby who seems to have certain findings, you know, by the regular pediatrician and they think there may be a genetic syndrome at play. Right. And so what's interesting is, I mean, that it makes complete sense historically because, you know, babies were born and then you know, over years, we've, we've known more and more about genetics. And so someone said, Hey, you know, this, you know, this baby who's having some, some issues, some findings, you know, maybe it's a genetic uh, source. And so let's find someone who's an expert in genetics. But what's so interesting, and, you know, we'll talk about this either in this podcast and other podcasts is our ability to make those diagnoses or have these findings before birth are so much greater now than they ever were, that this idea of, you know, genetics being only pediatrics is somewhat outdated. And you would think there'd be a lot more need for OBGYNs who have expertise in genetics, because that's when we're finding this out now. No, agreed. I mean, it was so exciting to me to know that I could do this as an OBGYN, but you don't really see it out there in the community. But yes, it's very useful. It comes, it's probably part of the conversation every single day when taking care of, of pregnant patients. Yeah. And so just, just so our listeners understand, what's the difference between a medical geneticist and a genetic counselor? Genetic counseling is a graduate, it's a graduate degree field where professionals are trained in medical genetics. They learn the basic sciences, DNA, genes, inheritance, inheritance patterns. They spend a long time learn, talking about non-directive counseling and how to help patients go through decision-making processes in a way that speaks to that patient. And they work hand-in-hand hand with medical geneticists, OBGYNs, and actually they work hand-in-hand hand with doctors in all fields of medicine at this point. And so they're not MDs. They are professionals who are trained in genetics and in bringing genetics to the people, like to really breaking it down and guiding patients through decision processes in a really non-directive way, in a way that makes sense for their, you know, for the families. And I've loved working with OB, with, uh, medic, with genetic counselors, sorry. I've learned a lot from them. So they work hand in hand. Some genetic counselors actually work independently or will work for a lab and will work more on the internal side, but it's a graduate degree that you go after college and you get a graduate degree. Right. So meaning to become a genetic counselor, you know, someone would graduate college, have an interest in genetics, biology, patient counseling, and then apply to and get accepted to uh, a program. And the training for genetic counseling is, is like two or three years, typically. Yeah. Right. And yeah. So, so they do two or three years and they get a degree in genetic counseling. But uh, as you said, the difference is they don't go to medical school. They're not physicians, they don't quote unquote take care of patients, they don't, you know, prescribe things, they don't help them through the the issues. They just help them with the counseling, whereas medical geneticists such as yourself are doctors who do extra training in genetics to help take care of patients with genetic diagnoses or concerns for genetics. 
and that spans multiple things, you know, including cancer and, you know, there's so much that goes with genetics. And so the genetic counselors will frequently rely on the medical geneticists for information uh, regarding the care of those patients. Yeah, definitely. The relationship is very complementary. So sometimes the genetic counselor will have some newer information on the newest genetic testing that's available. And then the medical geneticist will have more of that experience of, well, what's being done for this type of patient? And what are the patient's options clinically? Or what, what can we do with this kind of result? Or will it be useful in managing their care? Right. And so most people who have, they say, oh, I had genetic counseling, if they have it at all, usually will meet with a genetic counselor. They'll go over sort of their family history. They'll go over sort of what are options for testing, again, based on the specifics of why they're having genetic counseling. And then usually that's it. The genetic counselor will talk to the patient, talk to the patient's you know, regular doctor, again, whether it's a pediatrician or an OBGYN. And that's sort of the end of the genetics piece. When would a medical geneticist such as yourself, get involved with the patient directly? And what circumstances would that happen? We're sort of taken to the next level, so to speak. Okay. So I think the classic situation where you meet with a genetic counselor and that would be it is when you're not really going because there's a problem. You're going because you want to do, let's say, carrier screening. You're about to have a child and you want to be sure that there isn't a problem. So you meet with a genetic counselor at the first step, but once you encounter something that actually is posing an issue that potentially could complicate things or that will need a decision-making process or something that's going to impact their care, that's when you meet a doctor. So let's say you find out that the couple both carries the same condition and now they have to face, well, should we explore other options? aside from the old-fashioned way of having a baby, that's when a doctor will step in. Or another example would be if there's an abnormal finding on an amniocentesis result and it needs to be brought, you know, fleshed out more and explained and options, you know, are on the table, that's when the doctor will step in. Right. And in terms of prenatal, like pregnancy-related genetics, there is a lot of overlap between what a medical geneticist might do and either an OB or a maternal fetal medicine specialist might do sort of with those things. So for example, if someone does this, the carrier screening and the couple are both carriers of a certain condition, frequently the OB or a maternal fetal medicine specialist can talk about what that means and what are the options for testing and you know whether it's a CVS or an amniocentesis and that could also be medical genetics, as you said. And so there is some overlap, which is one of the reasons you and I are able to work together because there's so much overlap between what we do in terms of counseling. And then sometimes there are situations where a maternal fetal medicine specialist is not available or is not aware of all of the intricacies of the genetic condition and the medical geneticist gets involved. And so it's also you and I have these complementary roles to each other uh, where we each you know, did OBGYN and then we did extra training. And there's some differences in the training and a lot of overlap in the training. And it just helps expand all of the possible roles that the doctor can play in the care of the patient. Agreed. I mean, sometimes you have a situation where two people are carriers for a condition, but if you take a deeper dive and look down into the exact genetic change in the gene, you might learn that, hey, actually this change may, may, be, may result in a really light form of a disease or something that may be not as scary as we initially had thought. So I think that's what I appreciate about having my genetics background is to then 
just have the tools to take that deeper dive and look down at the actual specifics of a specific genetic change to see if if we can help patients get a better understanding of what their perspective is. Right. So just for, for our listeners, just to sort of put this in context, before Tamar joined our team, we take care of a lot of people. A lot of people come in for genetic counseling. So we have genetic counselors and they would get their screening tests, whether it's for carrier screening or for you know, annual screening, we'll talk about that. And most of the time, we as OBGYNs or as maternal field medicine specialists, we're able to navigate, you know, sort of what to do, what decisions to make. But frequently, there would be situations that would come up where it's very advanced genetic diagnoses, or like you said, nuances in the exact mutation, which is, I mean, something we're not, you know, we could read about and we can look it up, but it's not really our expertise. We don't do this. And this happens a lot. I mean, you know, if to OBGYNs and maternal, maternal fetal medicine specialists, and we would have to send the patient for a medical genetics consultation. And that was very complicated because most medical geneticists are pediatricians. They work in different settings. They don't spend most of their time doing prenatal diagnosis and prenatal care. It's mostly taking care of children. You'd have to wait one to four weeks to get an appointment. And it was sort of a very complex process for the patient. And you're talking about a massive amount of stress and anxiety going on right now. And so it was always a very difficult situation for everybody. But now that Tamar's on our team, Tamar, you're on a team, it's so seamless because we can go back and forth between each other, bounce ideas off each other, have the patient see me one day, you the next day, or you one day and me the next day, or, or just one of us. And it really allows for a much more comprehensive care plan for patients regarding genetics, which is just become so complex that you really need people to understand it, to, to talk to patients about it. It's true. It's really nice that we're together, it works so nicely. And I think the patients appreciate it. How did you get into all this? Like, wh where are you from? How did you get into medicine? What brought you to OBGYN just from the beginning? I'm from New Jersey. And I would say I remember dissecting a frog in seventh grade and crying from it. So I, back then, I don't think I ever thought I would become a doctor. But as I grew, as I went through high school and started college, I was, I noticed that I loved biology, thought that you know, the human design was fascinating. And so I went along and I said, okay, I'm pre-med for now, pre-med for now. And then it just kept on going. And then at that year, you had to write this essay, a 10-year vision essay when you applied for college. And I wrote about wanting to go into women's health. And I knew I wanted to take care of women sometime in the future. And I could cr probably credit Barnard for that because that's where I was when I was applying for medical school. And I didn't even think it was going to be OBGYN. I had no clue. But then, you know, when I went through medical school at Mount Sinai, I just loved OBGYN. I loved that rotation. I thought it was incredible, exciting, intimate, so important. And so I was hooked immediately. And I loved my OBGYN uh, residency. It was amazing. And I loved the action. I loved the intensity. And, and where, did you, where did you do your residency? I did residency at Einstein, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. Right. And that and, was amazing. And Einstein's one of, the pro, one of the few places that has a medical genetics fellowship for people who did OBGYN. Correct. Yes. It, Einstein is very unique because the, as opposed to most academic institutions where the medical genetics department is usually nestled in the pediatrics department, or in internal medicine, I didn't even realize, but I stepped into a place where 
medical genetics is housed in the OBGYN department. And that was, that was very lucky for me. So, so I didn't know any different. I saw and was inspired by several of my mentors who just, whenever they talked us in OBGYN about genetics, I just lit up. I thought it was fascinating, exciting. I thought it was hard, actually, uh, hard to understand. And I think I liked that challenge. And I've always liked that feeling of like thinking really hard to figure things out. So I was really inspired by a few of the leaders of the genetics department that was with me in OBGYN. And I decided to take that plunge. I mean, it was very new. I No one else was doing it in my residency, but I was lucky enough to train. And I also had incredible pediatric genetics mentors once I did the fellowship program at Einstein as well. Anything that somebody taught had to teach me about how genetics was, came, to, came to play in patient care, I thought it gave me great tools to be able to help my patients better. And how long and exactly I, is a fellowship? The fellowship, which is really officially a residency, but it's two years. Then you split time between pediatrics and, and I had the other half of my time in OBGYN. Right. And so that's where you're doing additional ultrasound and invasive procedures. I mean, we do some of this in residency in OBGYN, but, right. you know, but in terms of extra training, and that's where you got the, the further expertise in those yeah. regards. Yeah, I was very lucky because I walked into a department where all of the amniocentesis and CVS procedures were going through the genetics department. And we had amazing genetic counselors, a large group of really talented genetic counselors who... I got to work with and learn from. And it was great for the department because all of the procedures were tracked and kept, you know, there was no situation where you first do an amnio, you get the results, then you have to first connect with a genetic counselor. Like it was all through that department. So I got a lot of training from that. In terms of genetics as a field, I'm curious how in your time from when you started training until now, how is genetics as a field changed over time. I remember sitting in a class at Sarah Lawrence College, which is one of the genetics programs. When I did my fellowship, I took a course at Sarah Lawrence. And one of the teachers said, this is a field where every subspecialty needs genetics because there's a genetic etiology at play for most diseases. We just may know it or not know it. And it's becoming more and more important. So that was something that stuck in my mind. And I think that I've just seen it explode over the past, you know, 10, 12 years where there's no conversation about disease or disease processes without a genetics component. So I just feel like it's become more part of the conversation when taking care of patients with many conditions. And I think the other part is just the level of genetic testing itself. So you're not just looking at the whole chromosome. You're not just taking a, a magnification and looking for small pieces of missing or extra DNA, but you can look even deeper than that. And literally every year, more genes are discovered and genetic causes for different conditions are discovered. So you can't, I can't rely on what I learned in training to counsel my patients. It, it, that's just the beginning. And I'm literally learning something new every time I take care of a new patient. And so with this expanding sort of knowledge and tech, you know, technology, obviously there are, there's wonderful opportunities, you know, for discovery and potentially for treatment and for cure and prevention. But at a certain point, a lot of people ask, do we know too much in a certain sense? Meaning 
this idea that everything that's going to happen to you is sort of in your DNA. And a lot of people talk about this. Maybe we're we're looking too deep and particularly, you know, with fetuses, are we trying to find perfection when it doesn't exist? How do you address those concerns that maybe people might have when we start talking about genetic counseling and genetic testing that maybe they just don't want to know these things? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely, I agree with that, that you know, technology and the testing strategies that we have are almost ahead of the medical knowledge. So you can get a lot of information about a person's DNA or a fetus's DNA, but is it useful? And can we give concrete guidance about the findings? And we not, can't always help people make sense of the findings. And so I'll say to, let's say, expecting parents, okay, why did we do this test? We did this test to find out, just to be ahead of things. Let's say someone's doing an amniocentesis just because they're concerned and they want to be sure they've checked everything. They're not looking for a possible increased risk for learning disabilities. They're looking for serious disease and serious issues or something that they need to prepare for. So I'll say to somebody, this if there's a finding that we can't understand, we have, you know, maybe we have to put it into the I don't know category. This wasn't the reason that we did the test. Let's go back to why you did this test. And did we rule out the things you wanted to rule out? And if so, then maybe we can maybe we could find a way to to make this okay and to just sort of carry on. Right. I mean, there's there's a big conversation about this, you know, like you said, when we do testing to try to limit the tests that the lab runs to conditions we know things about, meaning if someone has a a certain diagnosis, you you can't say exactly what's going to happen to anybody because there's always like a range. There's like brackets around, you know, best case scenario, worst case scenario. And I think people can wrap their heads around the idea that there's a diagnosis, but we don't know exactly how it's going to play out versus well, there's like a little piece of DNA missing in a pretty important spot, but we have no idea if that means anything or not. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. how, how do you process that? You're like, well, it could be absolutely nothing or it could be horrible. Like that, those brackets are just too wide to be helpful. They're just, you know, terrifying. And so I think the labs are trying not to report things that are completely unknown. You mean even not test for them or not report them. And maybe just, you know, over time, we will be able to collect more data to understand. And that's like you said, where we can do tests, but we first need sort of 10 years of data to figure out what some of these things mean. And when you're in that interim period, it's hard if you do get those results to know what to tell people about them and how to put it into context. Definitely. It's a huge challenge. And even, and and although labs do limit the amount of testing that's performed on a prenatal sample, we still do often enough get these results where we do not know what it means. And, you know, it could end up that this result will be further understood down the line. And in a few years, we'll learn that this is just a normal variation of human DNA. And it's just what makes people unique and different from each other. And, or it down the line, it could end up being a new name syndrome that has serious outcomes. So it, it's definitely still a challenge. Right. And I think that's what you said is a very important point for people to understand that DNA, the DNA between each of us is there's a lot of parts. Most of it is very similar. And then there's things that are different, right? What makes people different in terms of, you know, how tall they are, what color their hair is, sort of what their something, you know, what their personality, their disposition, you know, and all that. 
And those, you know, are just whatever variations in the DNA. But then there are certain things that we don't call variations. We call them, you know, disease. And sometimes that line is very clear. And sometimes that line is very blurred, meaning if someone has a variation in their DNA that makes them more predisposed to getting a condition, but doesn't mean they'll get it. Well, like, what do you do with that? And so we have a lot of that with cancer. There's so many quote unquote cancer genes, but you know, you can run a panel on somebody and find out they have three of these cancer genes, but it doesn't mean they're going to get cancer and it doesn't tell you which cancer necessarily or when and what to do about it. I mean, all of us have a risk of cancer as we get older. And so there's so much more information about the DNA potentially than the conditions and how it plays out. Right. You have to, what happens is that labs will collect information, right? So they'll have a, a certain variation in the, in the gene and then they have to study it and they have to make models in the laboratory and see how that DNA functions in the lab, see if it makes the right protein. And then it's see if that protein actually does its job in a Petri dish. And they also will study what's going on in the family and they'll gather information on, well, okay, the mother had it, but she didn't seem to have any symptoms and the brother had it and he had these two findings. And so they'll gather information from all these different sources and from many different families. And then slowly the, you know, the understanding comes. So that's a long process. And sometimes we don't have all the information today. It's so hard. And I think that one of the real challenges in genetics, and this is certainly true in what I do every day with, you know, OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine is, and it's true in other fields, the field of genetics is complicated, as you said, and it's evolving rapidly, as you said, and the, the number of people who really have really good handle on what's going on are few. But almost every person who enters sort of the medical world as a patient, as you said, someone's going to drop the word genetic on them with any condition. It's going to happen. It's going to come up because there's always genetics. Is it genetic? What they have? Are their kids at risk? Are their siblings at risk? But the counseling is usually so basic because the people doing the counseling, your physician, whoever you know he or she is, doesn't know all of this. And nor they're not expected to know all this because it's too complicated. Like asking me to understand advanced cardiology doesn't make any sense. I don't know advanced cardiology. I know about it, but I don't know enough. So for genetics, since every doctor interacts with genetics, but not every doctor is trained in this, it's very hard for patients to go through this system. And we're always, you know, we sort of not really joke, but we're serious that pretty much every pregnant patient needs genetic counseling to understand what's going on. It takes a long time and it's complicated, but there aren't enough genetic counselors on earth to do that. Yeah. I mean, I'll say two things. I think, first of all, generally speaking to your general, your doctor is, is a really good place to start because people might've taken biology in high school or college, but they, they're generally not so so involved in in DNA and talking about it every day. So I think it's a very good place to start. And it's sometimes, and or many times, it's enough to speak to your OBGYN and your internal medicine doctor and your pediatrician. That's usually enough. But when it comes down to some sort of finding or something complex, then you start with a genetic counselor who will literally review what is DNA, where where do we get it from, what 
you know, how many chromosomes are we supposed to have and, or generally do people have, and what is a chromosome? And they'll, they'll wait, the, the, the consult takes a long time and a lot of it is educational just to form a baseline understanding so that then you can have a separate conversation about the genetic finding and what it means for them and their children and their family members. Totally. It's, um, this is really, really interesting stuff. And tomorrow, I'm so happy that a, you're around, <laughs> that, you're, that you're with Thanks. us. And I know that it's been really helpful for our patients and helpful for our doctors. And I think that this is some a conversation that's going to continue essentially forever as we learn more and more about our DNA and about genetics and genetic condition conditions and testing. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to look forward to more from you. I know we're going to do a podcast about aneuploidy screening, which is very common in pregnancy, and also carrier screening. So thank you so much for coming on, and we look forward uh, to hearing from you about those topics as well. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.